0: You're going to love this. Just love it.
1: I hope your seatbelts are fastened, your helmets are on. Get ready for a broadcast with a guest host today. you're stuck in the middle of a broadcast with me. I'm Peter B. Collins. Delighted to be sitting in for Brad and Desi today as they take a couple of well-deserved days off. They are the harding, hardest working people in independent media, I have to say, and I'm glad to sub for them today. If you've never heard of me, I'm based in San Francisco. I'm a recovering radio talk show host and I blog daily and podcast at peterbcollins.com. And our program today is heard on KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, on the central coast of Oregon at uh, 91.7 KYAQ and 106.7 KSOW, in uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 93 FM WLRA. I'm sorry, that's WLRI. And aloha to my favorite island in Hawaii, Over in Maui at 88.5 KAKU and in Columbus, Ohio, some of your favorite sons will be joining me later this hour. We're heard on 94.1 FM WGRN and a shout out to the progressive voice of Minnesota. KTNF on AM 950, and we're coast-to-coast and around the globe streaming on Progressive Voices, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and Blanketing the Globe on Radio Sputnik. And I think that uh, covers all of our outlets. However, you have found our program, I'm glad to have you with us today. And as I mentioned about Columbus, Ohio, coming up shortly, we've got uh, Bob Fitrakis and Cliff Arnbeck, And uh, they have been protecting elections both in Ohio and around the nation for many years. And they have some stunning findings about uh, vote manipulation that appears to be taking place in the Democratic primary for president this year. Also coming up, Kevin Zeese is going to join me for a conversation about a pretty provocative idea. Should Bernie Sanders bolt the Democratic Party? and join Jill Stein on the Green Party ticket this November. It's a really interesting idea, and if you're like me, I'm not a member of the Democratic Party ordinarily. I have to tell you that temporarily I registered as a Democrat to help a friend who got elected as a Bernie delegate to the Democratic National Convention. But I have been an independent, a no-party preference voter, as we're called in California, uh, for more than 20 years now. And independents make up the greatest group of the electorate. The big parties, the two big parties, are truly minority parties now. And when you look at those numbers, you look at the landscape, you look at the polling, a run by Bernie Sanders on the Green Party ticket if he is denied the Democratic nomination makes a lot of sense to many people. And we'll air that out a little bit later in the broadcast today but I want to start off in Hiroshima, Japan. This music is from the Canadian band Rush. And it's about the top secret World War II venture called the Manhattan Project, which produced the first atomic bombs that were dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August of 1945.
0: Score. Whoever found it first would be sure to do their worst. You always had before.
1: In an historic step, the President of the United States, Barack Obama, became the first to visit Hiroshima, Japan following the nuclear attack launched by the United States, as I mentioned, in 1945. It killed over 100,000 citizens of Japan at that time and left many people with lifelong illnesses. And Obama had announced in advance that he would not be apologizing to the Japanese people for the use of nuclear weapons by the United States, but he really tried to set the optics And using his skills uh, in rhetoric, he presented what I found to be, you know, a well-intentioned, perhaps, but uh, a mixed message. And what he left us with is a call for what he said is a moral revolution. But this was a speech that uh, echoed eerily his pro-war acceptance speech of the Nobel Peace Prize back in 2009. And on the one hand, to hear the president say that, uh, you know, uh, we, we need a moral revolution and to uh, really deplore the expansion of nuclear arsenals around the globe, well, it comes off as uh, really quite hollow. Now, the president did defy some of his uh, domestic critics and met with survivors of the attacks, one 91-year-old man, Uh, went up to shake his hand and didn't let go for quite a few minutes. And uh, the president, by all accounts, uh, you know, uh, stood and uh, accepted the uh, comments and the expressions of some of these survivors. But when you look at the big picture, Barack Obama's actions do not match his words. Because on Thursday... A new census of the American nuclear arsenal shows that this administration has reduced the stockpile by less than any other post-Cold War president. And he also has committed to a revitalization of our nuclear programs to the tune of a trillion dollars over the next 20 or 30 years. And that doesn't sound like a president who hopes that within his lifetime, Quote, a persistent effort can roll back the possibility of catastrophe. And so it really is uh, awkward in many ways. And as I say, these mixed messages really uh, kind of muddy the waters and leave President Obama as a guy who says one thing while he does another. And David Swanson, a man I've known for many years who is an anti-war activist. He has a new updated edition of his book, War is a Lie, that has just been published. And he's on the West Coast uh, this week uh, promoting the book and appearing in bookstores and in media to talk about it. He described Obama's speech in Hiroshima as painting a peace sign on a bomb. And he quotes the president, We may not be able to eliminate man's capacity to do evil, so nations and the alliances we form must possess the means to defend ourselves. And Swanson describes that as leaping from a false claim about the past to a necessity to continue dumping our resources into the weapons that produce, rather than avoid, more wars. After much in this highly damaging vein, Obama added, But among those nations like my own that hold nuclear stockpiles, we must have the courage to escape the logic of fear and pursue a world without them. We may not realize this goal in my lifetime. We're not bound by genetic code to repeat the mistakes of the past. We can learn. We can choose. We can tell our children a different story. But Swanson notes that... Obama has repeatedly suggested, including in his first ever pro-war Nobel uh, Peace Prize acceptance speech, that uh, there would be little point in trying to end it. And Swanson uh, is very strong about these issues. He says, there's nothing inevitable about war. It's not made necessary by our genes, our inevitable forces in our culture, or by crises beyond our control. So uh, I'm going to link to David Swanson's commentary in the show notes at bradblog.com for today's podcast, and I encourage you to see what he has to say. Now, at the same time, President Obama has presided over an expansion of our military footprint. We are fighting a war in Afghanistan and uh, also another one in Iraq and Syria. The latter is not supported by any declaration of war or other explicit authorization, by the Congress as required by the Constitution and War Powers Law. And right now we are learning, confirming, that those American advisor and assisters who are in Syria, who are alongside what is, uh, is called the uh, Syrian Democratic Forces, we have no idea who they are. These are the mythical moderate uh, fighters, I guess, that we are told exist there and that we've been spending money on. But a French photographer captured American soldiers in combat gear, riding in pickup trucks, along with members of this uh, mysterious democratic Syrian forces. (laughs) And while the Pentagon spin is that they're only advising and training and assisting, well, they're right there on the front lines. And in this country, it's yawns. It's whatever. Whatever. The Democrats who opposed war when it was Bush who was waging it are silent and kind of gritting their teeth as Obama expands our military footprint. And Republicans are quietly cheering the president on. Uh, Of course, they can't admit that to their political followers. And so we have a really gruesome situation where there is very little resistance to the failed and militaristic policies of President Obama, and that's not all. In Africa, in Burkina Faso, U.S. Army troops are involved in uh, efforts to train African forces, and they're conducting, uh, you know, military operations uh, in a training mode. In Kenya, we're told that American trainers funded by the State Department are working with police commandos on how to respond to terrorist attacks like those that have been uh, attributed to al-Shabaab. And in Gabon, next month, paratroopers from the 82nd Airborne Division will be jumping out of a plane and straight into a joint exercise to train Central African militaries. Now, we're told these are all training and advisory missions, But they can creep very quickly into something more severe, and that is the concern that I have. And the last element here is that we have just this week more than 7,000 refugees who were fleeing the wars in the Middle East who had to be rescued on the Mediterranean Sea. Now, the flow has resumed despite the efforts by Europe to shut off their borders, paying the Greeks to return refugees to Turkey, paying the Turks to hold them there. And because we helped destabilize Libya, that is the porous border where the refugees are now massing and attempting to cross the Mediterranean. And yesterday, uh, uh, Thursday night, on uh, public television, they played video footage of one of these overcrowded boats that was listing badly, and then all the passengers ran to the other side to try to right it, and that's what caused the boat to capsize. Tragedy happening all around the world, and the U.S. deeply involved in much of it. We'll continue on the broadcast in just a moment.
0: Hey, it's Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. And while the Bradcast and bradblog.com fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation, we need your support to keep doing so now more than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going, or even just a one-time only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions that those horses are running on, because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy by taking about 60 seconds to stop by Bradblog.com/slash donate right now. And thanks.
1: We continue on the broadcast. Sitting in for Brad Friedman today, I'm Peter B. Collins. Get more info about me, peterbcollins.com. I'm also involved with NewsBud, an exciting new progressive media startup. You can get all the info at newsbud.com. Should Bernie Sanders bolt to the Green Party?
2: Presidential elections are planned distractions. To divert attention
1: from the action behind the scenes. Kevin Zeese is a longtime progressive activist, part of Occupy Washington, founder of PopularResistance.org. And together with Patrick Walker on May 13th, he published an essay at Truthdig.com asking the question, should Bernie Sanders stay in the race but switch to the Green Party for the November election? It's a provocative issue, and we aired it out in a recent podcast. Here's an excerpt for you. Well, I think you've raised some very important points in a in a timely manner. You built a cogent case where you covered a lot of the questions that people have about uh, the potential for a three-way race and how it might break down. And, and I want to air that out in some detail, Kevin. But before what? we get to it, two items that uh, crossed my desk just this morning. There is a new poll that is truly shocking, and it shows that among young American voters, 91% told pollsters that they're not satisfied with a choice between Trump and Clinton and they want to see an independent candidate on the November ballot. Uh, there aren't 91 percent of Americans who agree on blue skies. <laughs> and uh, when you drill down in the survey uh, across the uh, entire voting population, the number who won an independent on the ballot is 55 percent. That is a majority. And as as you and and Patrick pointed out in your article, the registration numbers for both Democrats and Republicans, the two big parties, have declined uh, well even below pluralities to roughly you know, 25% for the Republicans and just under 30% for the Democrats. So independents are the dominant voter group in this country. And it is amazing to see the corporate media continue to focus on the failed two big parties uh, as if they are the only game in the country.
3: Lots of great points. You know, that poll also found 65 percent would consider uh, an independent candidate over Trump and uh, and Clinton. And also they concluded that from their review of their polling that an independent would begin with 20 percent of the vote. And that's important because that's well above the number needed in order to be included in the national presidential debates, controlled by that corporation that's called the commission, the National Commission mm. on Presidential debates, so right. they, they'd be included in, in the uh, national debate, which be, would be hasn't happened since Ross Perot. Uh, so that's pretty astounding stuff. Um, and so I think we are at the right time when Patrick Walker, who's with Bernie or Bust, uh, and uh, has helped to co-found that pledge that has more than 100,000 people signed on to it now. Uh, we decide. Um, after talking to both of our organizations and long conversations online, we decided to put this out now because uh, even though the primary is not completely resolved, uh, Sanders is still running.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: and plans to run the convention. We thought this is the time to begin the discussion because this is a you know a new idea, and it would require Sanders, Senator Sanders, to uh, reverse his position. He's been saying he'll support the Democratic nominee, you know, from the beginning of his campaign. But there's been so many you know. Uh, ethical issues, uh, you know, bias against Sanders uh, uh, throughout the campaign, mm-hmm. the primary. That I think he should feel comfortable to leave that pledge behind and do do what he really needs to do, which is to continue his so-called political revolution. Which I'm great. I'm glad he put that term into play. Well, mm-hmm. it's
1: going to be interesting to see because uh, I, I'm really grateful that you have raised these issues, and I think your timing is excellent. Uh, if it was a month ago, uh, it would have been just uh, rejected out of hand, I believe. But yeah. I, I think that Sanders is recognizing and being more vocal, more public uh, about the obstructionism of the Democratic Party leadership and, right. and our listeners don't need to hear all this, but I'll just tick off quickly that Debbie Wasserman Schultz was mm-hmm. the national co-chair of the Hillary campaign in 2008. The Obama White House des- detests her, and they've been trying to get rid of her for a long time. But the Clinton camp has kept her in place, and she is serving them well, uh, from the debates that were scheduled in off-prime times and on a limited basis uh, to <clears throat> many of the other machinations leading up to the contention seen in uh, Las Vegas last weekend. And it's very clear by putting Barney Frank in charge of the Rules Committee and other uh, uh, loyalists of the Clintons. Uh, who are going to run the Democratic convention in Philadelphia with as heavy a gavel as was used in Las Vegas and enraged the Bernie delegates there last weekend. And right. and so he does not have a path forward inside the Democratic Party, in my view. And fighting over platforms and, you know, hoping that he might be appointed to some significant position if Hillary does get elected, uh, I think those are pretty meaningless to the uh, millions of supporters that Sanders has rallied. In this cycle,
3: I completely agree, and, and, and just to add one more thing, th- th- you know, it's pretty hubris of Clinton to put a former co-chair of hers in charge of the DNC. But even equally bad is 31 state Democratic parties entering into a financial agreement with victory for Hillary, a pack that's uh, to raise money together.
1: Well, and and not only that Kevin, that, but that, that was before the Iowa vote. But she hasn't kept her deal. I, I know, mean, the I know. the the Hillary Victory Fund was supposed to throw off revenues for right. state and local parties and the uh the woman who controls the Hillary Victory Fund also controls the accounts with these various state committees that signed the deal and you see one transaction after another where they have a big George Clooney fundraiser, hundreds of thousands pour into the party coffers and the next day they're all transferred out to washington
3: <laughs> exactly and, and, and senator sanders pointed out in the letter to debbie wasserman schultz that these look like they violated federal election laws the way that they're using this fund really to support the hillary campaign right. and not now it's supposed to do so it's very interesting so i do think this is a key time it really is up to bernie you know i think if bernie decides that he wants to carry on through november uh, aligning with jill stein then i think you'd have an amazing political year i think the first step is for Stein and Sanders to meet. Um, who knows what would come out of that meeting? Mm-hmm. But I know one thing that would come out of that meeting. It would be a media frenzy. Yeah. Uh, it would just be incredible. And then what would come after that would be some polls that ran the three together, Trump, Clinton, and Sanders. And uh, then we'd see that Sanders is actually going to be probably neck and neck, if not winning, mm-hmm. a three-way race. And then you can really start to have a debate about what makes sense. Once we have some more information, we see things beginning. Uh, then you'd have a really interesting debate among the you know the people who want to see a much more progressive agenda. And, and that's what the people want. You know, if you look at polling on issues, we are getting such national consensus on a broad range of issues. I mean, we, we've always had majority support on a lot of progressive issues, mm-hmm. but now we're talking 75 to 90 percent support. I mean, really big majority support on, you know, money out of politics, on holding Wall Street accountable, on single-payer health care, on issue after issue after issue. We are in two-thirds and up levels of support now, up into 90, 90%. So it's a pretty incredible time. And, and Sanders has a unique opportunity, not just our, the fact that independents will decide this election. There are forty-six to 43% to 50% of the vote right now, uh, so they have plurality or even a majority. But also, uh, it's a time when Sanders will be going against the two most unpopular uh, nominees ever uh clinton would be the most unpopular nominee nominee ever but trump beats her uh they are both you know way in the stratosphere with high negatives uh so and And, he's he's the opposite he's got high positives
1: and 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 what that portends kevin is this ugly race to the bottom we're already hearing trump uh you know rehearse some of his attack lines and and he will be a monster in in a debate where inside of 30 seconds with his ADHD and, and the way his mind operates, he'll, he'll just uh, bounce from Lewinsky to Whitewater to Vince Foster to Benghazi uh, and and it will be dizzying, you know, even if she attempts to respond uh, and and refute uh, the things that he raises, uh, a lot of it is just going to be these smears that uh, you really can't do much about. I mean, how is she going to respond to the claim that she enabled Bill's philandering by helping attack uh, the women that he preyed upon? Yeah, uh, you know, sure. there is no defense for that, and, and these are issues that everybody has been so polite about. For the last twenty years, and, and just you know, kind of well, you know, that's their their family problem, and uh, you know, Democrats have have really built a bubble uh, around her, and and Trump has no reluctance to burst that bubble and watch her bleed.
3: And, and in fact, that's true, and he's using the word rape with Bill Clinton, so he's going very aggressive right away, and uh, you know, at the same time, you know, we know the Hillary team, the Clinton team, which has its minions in the media, they. Uh, you know, have people all over the talking heads and in the, within the elected establishment, they'll be pretty gris- ab- abusive, too. You're going to see some major attacks on Trump, not that he mm-hmm. hasn't invited those with his comments. So it's going to be a very negative campaign. No one's looking forward, I don't think anyone's looking forward to what we're going to have to sit through in the general election, but if you suddenly change that and add a new dynamic,
2: mm-hmm.
3: it's an incredible moment for Sanders because he would rise above that. He's not a negative campaigner. And he would also be someone who could block Trump from expanding his base from Republican white males because, you know, Trump's going to try to run to the left. In addition to attacking her, he's going to try to run to the left of her on issues of, you know, war, Mm -hmm. Wall Street, and trade agreements. On all three of those, um, especially the the trade agreements and Wall Street, Sanders trumps Trump's Trump. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and uh, he prevents him from moving... In expanding his base, so I think I, I wouldn't be surprised in that race, you know, to see Sanders actually win it. And I think also Sanders will hurt Trump uh, more than Clinton. It's not this is not the year 2000 when Nader, Bush, and Gore ran. This is 2016. It's a totally different environment. Back in the Nader days, you're talking about a equal equality between the Republicans, and Democrats, Independents with Independents slightly in third, uh, but basically all in the, in the low 30s. And now you're talking about independence as the time determining factor, uh, you know, and so, and we also, you know, one of the big issues people throw out these days is no one will get 270 electoral college votes. Mm-hmm. And that means it gets decided by the House representatives. Well, first off, we've had so many third party races effective third-party races, you know, former vice presidents and former presidents have run third-party, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, Henry Wallace, I mean, uh, you know, Ross Perot mm-hmm. was at 30, 30% at one point in, the, in, that, in that campaign, and we never had that problem, so it's, it may be a problem that's exaggerated. What tends to happen is people who are winning win enough states, but if it doesn't, you know, one of the things I found so fascinating in researching this article was an article from 1980 by Lawrence Tribe. A long articles, in fact two parts in the Atlantic, about the 1980 race, because people were very afraid then.
1: John Anderson.
3: John Anderson was going to make it so no one got 270. Right. And so he did a whole article on that whole history, which was so interesting. But the most important thing I found that he reported was George Wallace in 1968 had entered into a contract with each of his electors saying, you will vote as I tell you. So if it came down to uh, not enough electoral college votes, Wallace could go to Nixon, and negotiate for something in return for electoral college votes. In fact, that kind of negotiation was going on two days before the 1968 election. It was a very close election between Nixon and Humphrey, uh, and so it was in doubt the whole way. And Nixon was negotiating with Wallace about what he would give for his electoral college votes, because Wallace did win some states. And that would ensure Nixon won. Well, what would happen, and in the end, by the way, of course, they didn't need Wallace's votes. Nixon got 270, and so they went on without uh, Wallace having to get get anything out of it. What would happen in a negotiation with Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton? You think that Bernie Sanders just won Vermont, and that was enough to stop Hillary? what a great negotiation but what ha- you know as i said sanders could win
1: well and, and and kevin let me just reframe that because the way the polls uh, uh, are looking right now with the broad appeal that sanders has beyond the democratic party and right. with enough votes inside the democratic uh democratic party about 45 percent so far right. uh it, the the probability would be that hillary clinton would be negotiating with bernie sanders uh if bernie's got 250 260 electoral college votes uh and needs some of hillary's electors to uh uh, you know edge out trump uh that to me is the more likely scenario than uh sanders only winning one or two states and uh, being able to help hillary
3: yeah,' that's very, that's very true. I was just taking like even in the, even in the worst Sanders perspe- uh, case, you could still have Sanders having a lot of power on election day. but I think he could win the election. In addition to having ha- almost half the Democrat votes, there's the whole stop Trump movement. How many of those stop Trumpers would uh, would, would move to Sanders? And then you got the independent votes, you have the youth vote. I mean, there's so many ways that Sanders could build a, 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 major- a plurality or a majority coalition. In a three-way race, that I think that is a very possible outcome, and, and wouldn't that be a great way to
1: end? That's Kevin Zeese of PopularResistance.org. You can read his essay that he co-authored with Patrick Walker. It's at TruthDig.com, dated May 13th of 2016. There's more ahead as we talk about election manipulation in the Democratic primaries this year. From Columbus, Ohio, Bob Fatrakus and Cliff Arnbeck will join me next on the Bradcast. And the Bradcast continues. I'm Peter B. Collins.
0: Tuesday in November, I took that stroll to cast my ballot at the local poll. The lines were long, but I didn't care. I had a water, a hat in my folding chair. Walked up to the booth, didn't say a word. Jordan, my voice would be heard. I hit that button my vote was sent. But now nobody knows exactly where it went. I lost my vote. It isn't fair I took a standard. This year's presidential
1: primaries it, have been very interesting. On the Republican side, the exit polls are within the margin of error in matching the official tallies announced by state election tabulators. But on the Democratic side, it is wild and different. And in many states, 12 out of 26, the exit polls varied from the official tally by more than the margin of error. And in 11 of those 12 cases, Bernie Sanders is the one who came up short. I turn to the election integrity activists, Bob Fatrakas, who is a University professor, an author, an attorney, and the co-founder of the Columbus Free Press in Ohio, and Cliff Arnbeck, a dedicated attorney who has carried many important cases challenging stolen elections. And I asked them what's going on here in 2016. Let's now take a look at what's going on in 2016. Uh, the primaries are coming to a close. And uh, uh, Richard Charnon, who is a math whiz, has been following the anomalies, the uh, vagaries, the discrepancies between the official vote announced uh, and certified and the exit polls before the exit polls were corrected. And in 12 of 26 exit polls, they exceeded the margin of error. 11 of those were favoring Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders. And in 24 of 26 exit polls, uh, the shift was to Clinton uh, as the uh, numbers were rounded up (laughs) to match the official tally. So um, first of all, uh, uh, just a quick statement, election um, uh, exit polls are some of the most accurate surveying known to human beings. And yet we see that the Republican exit polls tracked the official results uh, with very little discrepancy, a couple of points here and there. But on the Democratic side, it's really fishy. So Bob, what's going on?
4: Well, uh, someone or something, an algorithm, is determining the results. Because when people come outside and tell you how they're voting, it's not matching uh, the actual vote. Uh, As an international election observer, you can only come to one conclusion. Somebody has written code or tampering with central tabulators uh, is shifting uh, votes. I don't know what other, you know, I mean, there is another, uh, two other things. The universal laws of statistics don't apply to the United States, just the rest of the universe. That's uh, a possibility.
1: Bob, are you attacking American exceptionalism? <laughs>
4: <laughs> I guess I am.
1: Well, all right, there's an ocean view suite at Guantanamo <laughs> for you. Uh,
4: or or uh, Hillary Clinton hit the classic lotto, Powerball, uh, and uh, super lotto all in the same night.
1: Now, Charnon estimates that the probability of this shift is one in 76 billion. That's, that is longer odds than the Powerball, isn't it?
4: Well, all of them combined. Uh, yeah. She hit the three numbers, she hit the four numbers, <laughs> she hit the five number. she hit the classic, she hit the, the Powerball, uh-huh. she hit the super lotto, all in the same
1: night. Now, how can this happen? Because we've become accustomed to see that when election outcomes are manipulated, they have always favored Republicans in the past. But this year, something seems to be different, Cliff.
2: Well, the, uh, the difference is that uh, uh, there's no person more worrisome to the military-industrial complex than Bernie Sanders, and uh, that is a group that, as Bob has uh, described so eloquently, uh, controls the voting machines. And so the technology, this massive uh, technology for massive vote shifting is being employed to shift votes from Bernie Sanders, the, can't, the threat, the threat, the mortal threat, to the control of the military-industrial complex over the politics of this country, is being is being uh, targeted. That's the simple answer. There's no no doubt about it, and it's it's beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, and 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 the, when you look at the evidence, by the way, the, the only reason that there is not a hue and cry over this is because the media is suppressing the information Mm
1: -hmm. well let's take for example the obvious pictures that we all saw on the night of the arizona primary Mm -hmm. and at 8 p.m the networks call the election for hillary clinton based on mail-in ballots and the pictures show thousands of people lined up waiting as long as five hours to vote and that to me is a clear indication Uh, And and the the election officials have acknowledged, uh, you know, gross errors on their part in the number of polling places. They say they were trying to save money, not suppress the vote. But when we zoom out and look at the big picture and all of the suppression efforts from the photo IDs to the widespread stripping of of, uh, voter uh, qualifications, by shifting them into a party that they didn't wanna to belong to and in a closed primary state. Mm-hmm. Whoops, they show up at the poll and they can't vote in the Democratic primary because suddenly they've been listed as a, a Libertarian or, or a Republican. Uh, we, we have the efforts to suppress turnout uh, on, on a number of fronts, uh, particularly in states like North Carolina where they've thrown every barrier they could except uh, a you know an explicit poll tax. Uh, and they also stripped, uh, I am told, by uh, people in North Carolina, uh, essentially the same number of votes that uh, basically comprised the margin uh, that uh, Democrats had in registration over Republicans. I've heard that number mm-hmm. was about 300,000. And so when we look at this in the big picture, uh, there is a massive uh, concerted conspiracy to keep people from voting, and it tends to redound to the benefits of establishment politicians in a non-establishment year. Exactly.
4: And now, and not only that, I mean, uh, remember the New York Times uh, ran an article saying that Hillary was the most pro-war of any candidate in the race, and this is when there were many Republicans uh, in in the race, and now you had... Uh, Charles Koch suggesting she may be the candidate of choice uh, for the right wing uh, in America. But absolutely, she represents the status quo. She represents uh, the 1%. And suddenly this red shift reserved for the you know, the C- former CIA director, George Herbert Walker Bush, and his son, George W. Bush, and to f- you know, Republican senators or the House, is suddenly that same demographic shift is now uh, seems to belong to Hillary Clinton, who's ever using it. But it's clear she uh, is the candidate of the status quo and the uh, candidate to beat back, uh, be it right-wing populism of Trump or the left-wing populism uh, of Bernie Sanders.
2: Could could I just say? uh, Sure, Cliff. it's, It's not that she is the candidate of choice she is being used her candidacy is being used to take away the nomination in the democratic primary from bernie sanders she's being used they do not they do not intend to have her uh... be the next president and on the republican side the uh, the going back to the military industrial complex the, their problem with trump and they had they had how many candidates to, to counter trump
1: all 16 of them,
2: all of them supporting more money for uh, defense mm-hmm. more mo- more overthrows of other countries right they're all neocons except trump who said we have spent five trillion dollars in the middle east what have we gotten for it what could we have done with five trillion dollars in this country trump is a threat to the military industrial complex as well so they're they the the uh the uh, the the the, all the vote cheat the vote switching has been in the democratic primary to eliminate bernie sanders
1: there's a song that was uh uh, recorded in the mid 80s by a kind of forgotten group called timbuk three and it goes uh, presidential elections are planned distractions (laughs) to uh, keep us from you know paying attention to what really is going on and when we look at this parade of Americans who believe that their vote would determine who the next president will be. And we've seen time and again that uh, the system, whether it's uh, the way delegates are assigned on on both the Republican and Democratic side, uh, the uh, superdelegates on the Democratic side, uh, we see a system that really is just a, a kind of charade or it it creates the illusion of popular participation. Is our whole process a scam that is really just offered as a pacifier to the people?
4: Well, I I like the CIA's term, which is called demonstration elections. The CIA, when it was manipulating the third world and admitted before the church committee in the mid-70s, that had done 5,000, quote, benign operations benign operation is uh, election rigging and stealing, as opposed to bloody coups. So uh, they say you have to have demonstration elections because what you're doing through that demonstration is establishing a false legitimacy. It gives a legitimacy uh, to government, but you're really picking the people behind the scenes. So that which they used to do uh, covertly During the Cold War, they now do overtly in the United States.
1: Hmm. Well, as you're saying that, Bob, I'm reminded of a a bizarre comment that Obama made. And it was after, um, this is about three years ago. And they, they ran an, a, an election in Afghanistan, and it was clearly uh, fraudulent, and there, there was rigging attempted on Every both sides. Every
4: election in that democracy, fraudulent.
1: And and what Obama said uh, as he embraced the outcome of it was, well, they ran an election that was consistent with democracy. <laughs> <laughs>
4: there was some candidates, there was some voting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Somebody (laughs) won.
1: Now, Bob, you have a greater command of mathematics than I do. And I'd like to ask you to explain to our listeners the work that Bev Harris has recently done. Bev, of course, (laughs) operates uh, Black Box Voting, and she's been an election integrity activist for many years. And she is analyzing the uh, GEMS software This is the private software that is sold to uh, election uh, officials around the country. Uh, It is not, uh, uh, you know, uh, open source, and so we can't evaluate it. But Bev Harris is saying that the GEMS tabulation software can be programmed to apply a fraction to a ballot that comes in. And this is kind of confusing because, you know, I vote for one person on a ballot, Mm -hmm. and when it gets tabulated, that's one vote. What what possible purpose is there for counting these votes in fractions?
4: Uh, The obvious one, election rigging, right? General election management systems. Uh, The assumption, and programmers have been telling me this for a long time, saying it's really simple to come up with a... uh, a vote counting system, prime plus one, Mm -hmm. the assumption is you're only counting one person. It becomes a little more difficult if suddenly you're counting people in uh, a tenth of a fraction. Uh, So you can assign them a 25th, a 40th. For example, this allows you uh, not only to round up votes for one candidate uh, over the other, but to actually set parameters and say Sanders voters Uh, count as nine-tenths of a person, Mm -hmm. Uh, and Clinton voters uh, get the extra vote, right? Uh, So for every hundred Clinton voters, uh, make that 110, add a tenth uh, to the whole, and subtract a tenth from Bernie Sanders. Thus, for every hundred votes cast for Sanders, he gets 90 votes, and for every hundred cast for Hillary Clinton, she gets an extra uh, 10 votes. And because it's a flip, you've really flipped out of 100 votes. I mean, you are ended up with, with uh, a yeah, 20% flip of the votes. So it's still within range, somewhat of plausibility, mm-hmm. not with the exit polls, but uh, essentially the fraction allows you to steal elections and rig outcomes. There's no other purpose for it. I mean, part of the argument is some systems, there's weighted voting. We, we don't really do that mm-hmm. uh, in the United States. It would be very useful, perhaps, in, in the weighted voting of people who own stock uh, in large publicly traded companies. Sure. But it has no use, no mm-hmm. use in an election.
2: Oh, that, so that maybe one that's voter. the answer. It's it's for the corporations that are voting. They're <laughs> fractionalizing that on the number of Seems shares. fair. See, so that the shareholders can... The you know, preferred people is. around Carl Road who have the
4: preferred voting stock. Uh-huh. And the common people like ourselves, who who really, uh, you have to subtract our voting power.
1: Mm-hmm. I recall uh, 10, 12 years ago, a group from uh, Humboldt, Humboldt County mm-hmm. up in... Uh, in Eureka, California, where I, my radio show was heard every day, uh, they developed the whole concept of that we do not consent uh, to an election process that is not transparent and verifiable. Mm-hmm. And yet today, many elections across the country are still being uh, uh, managed on these touch screen voting machines that were made uh, you know, to be generous uh, before 2004. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the uh, advances in technology, just smartphones and all the things that have come, Facebook and uh, you know, Google was, was barely known at that point. Uh, and so we're using software really from the last century that is hackable. And as our, our friend Brad Friedman likes to point out, is 100% unverifiable. So for example, the result in Kentucky, which has not been certified, it's a closed primary, and nevertheless, uh, Sanders came, we're told, within 1,923 votes of, uh, of catching Hillary Clinton. Uh, but <laughs> we don't have confidence in that election, and Sanders has requested a re-canvas. But doesn't that mean that they just go to a computer and press enter, and they run the same numbers that they ran on election night. Can there be any different outcome from this re-canvassing without a true recount with audit that would, you know, verify where and when votes were cast?
4: Uh, yeah, uh, you, you can't. I mean, there's eight states that have either all or some DREs, the direct recording electronic, the touch, uh, touch screen computers. Uh, and in those eight states, there's no paper trail. So uh, by law, I was looking at a Supreme Court case out of Pennsylvania that said, well, look, if they want paper in the machines, it's up to the legislature. Uh, why would you build a machine that can't be recounted? You've got eight states uh, with those machines counting our election. you got another 15 that have that thermo paper that mm-hmm. it's almost unreadable. It gets hot. It gets crunched up. It gets tore off. It's hard to keep chain of custody. So, you know, you're talking about uh, roughly, you know, 23 or so states that can't be uh, verified on any level. I mean, the reality is we have a faith-based voting system. It's push and pray. We've designed our system to be hacked. Uh, There's no other explanation for it. There's no way to verify the vote. Brad is absolutely right.
1: So, Cliff, most people who look at these issues closely acknowledge that the old-fashioned way of paper ballots counted at the precinct by human beings would be the most reliable system that we could use. Uh, Is there any chance that we're going to recognize that uh, digital voting is uh, too vulnerable and not transparent, as it's currently conducted, Uh, and should we just go back to paper and pencil
2: well if the choice is between uh, machines designed to uh, be hacked to allow hacking and lack of uh, being able to be audited uh, and paper ballots obviously you go you you go to paper ballots and not only is it more reliable it's probably what would you say bob you you've examined the amount of investment in this machine empire voting machine empire all these big fancy corporations that are building you know massive military equipment and uh high level intelligence all that it must be billions of dollars and and what would it cost to hire a bunch of uh unemployed people to count the ballots by hand it it would is, is it probably one one hundredth
4: uh, of the cost, yet yeah, it's a lot cheaper. We could use, of course, high school students as part of their community service. We could use the elderly, uh, good for fight for 15. Uh, and again, when uh, in 1994 uh, 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 and five, when I was in El, El Salvador, uh, really following uh, in 1994, the first election there, after the Civil War, when I went down as, as part of the international election observer teams, as, as someone with a PhD in political science coordinating with the United Nations, when we went to the conflicted zone of Sushi Toto, right, ground zero, you know, the, where the guerrillas are and the death squads, right, and we talked about the system that was acceptable to them, they came up with, we would like a big transparent Box. They didn't trust each other. And you have to put it in, in front of each other, and you open it up at the end of the night, and you open the ballot with the entire world, the UN observers, the international observers, mm-hmm. the media. They wanted each side to open these Publicly it's the only thing they could agree upon. Could you imagine if if the desk squad the Mono Blanca, said look We've hired our friends and the other desk squad. They've just <laughs> formed some IT companies They're gonna take you're gonna take the thumb drive and go back there and secretly count it and tell you who won Nobody would accept those non-transparent Uh, Results. The thing is, is you got to think of that thumb drive and those central tabulators as black boxes. My dad was in the Teamsters, you know, in Detroit. And when, you know, somebody like Jimmy the Weasel Fratiani, or someone with a name like that went into the back room with the ballot box and came out and said, look, Nikki the Greek won with like 74% of the vote. Everyone knew they were screwed. But because it's a flash drive or a central tabulator, we accept the
2: absurd, non-transparent results. Lest we be accused of being (laughs) Luddites and against technology, there was a gentleman who designed an electronic voting machine that produced a hard copy ballot that would be the actual uh, vote of record. Mm -hmm. His name was Ethan Gibbs. He was an auditor by background. And he designed this machine, and he presented it to the Secretary of State of Ohio at a time when Bob interviewed him on his radio program. After he completed this wonderful presentation of this secure electronic voting machine, he was driving to California for the purpose of delivering a speech or a, a presentation to the California legislature to advocate that they use this machine, that they fund this machine as their, as their voting machine. And he was assassinated. He was assassinated. Just like the Michael Hastings with the driving, uh, drive, they, they they electronically controlled his car, so he he drove into a, tr- a massive truck and is killed instantly.
4: Yeah, Harvey and I, uh, the week before he died, an article appeared in Mother Jones called Diebold's Political Machines. Ethan Gibbs was the source in the article who told us that the technology had really been developed uh, by the... Uh, Uh, Yerosevich brothers and they've been working with people on the far right and had connections to the CIA and then I ran a cover story in the Columbus Free Press you know outlining what I called the vast right-wing conspiracy which was the ties of all these far right-wing people to this uh, election technology he also included a barcode just like you get when you send out a package Mm -hmm. so you could actually track your vote and if there was any question, you could go in and match the barcode to the vote, and it would show you your ballot.
1: Yeah.
4: Uh, uh, it was a brilliant system. But, but the thing Ethan Gibbs asked me when he first met me, he said, look, you're an invest- you claim to be an investigative reporter, but why would people make machines, uh, ATM machines, that clearly the banks can audit and give you a paper trail, but they make... Voting machines with no paper trail that can't be audited. Mm-hmm. Think about it, and I have.
1: Well, and uh, you know, I call an ATM an automatic 20 machine. They've never shorted me a 20, they've never given me an extra 20. <laughs> and I've been using them for 20 years now. <laughs> and they give you a receipt, and <laughs> right? it
2: can be audited. Yeah. Now, Bob, tell Peter how you learned of Ethan Gibbs' death. Death. Uh,
4: very odd one. Uh, I'm at home and I get a anonymous, really anonymous email. It's one of the first ones I've ever seen where there's no header on it and it said, Ethan Gibbs is dead. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what the hell? I <laughs> chill up and down my spine. I, I call his company and they said, well, how did you know he just died within the last hour or so? I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know who sent me mm-hmm. the information, uh, but it
2: was uh, quite chilling. And I was talking to one of the top people in Ken Blackwell's office when he was Secretary of State and told her this story. And she said, well, you know, uh, Ethan made a presentation to us. And when I said, well, we we think he was assassinated, she said, well, that's what we thought, too. (laughs) That's Ken Blackwell and one of his top assistants, yeah. who was running for political office and was elected.
1: My thanks to Cliff Arnbeck and Bob Fatrakis. and you may have heard a reference in there to Harvey. That's Harvey Wasserman, the co-author with Mr. Fatrakus of a new book called Strip and Flip Selection 2016. For years, I've been playing this little ditty by Silicon Valley attorney Luce Bruce Kerr to ridicule airport security theater. <laughs>
0: with my clothes on till the airline clothing ban we went from scanning to banning one airline Well, that
1: airport security theater has reached a new low with huge lines due to a cutback in the number of security screeners. 12% cut in staff, a 15% in airline traffic, and the lines are incredible. American Airlines reports that this, this year so far, more than 70,000 of their customers have missed flights because of the backups at airport security. And this is all ridiculous. We will never dial back the securities, the programs that we put into place. And it's a joke. 95% of the weapons tests uh, that they do get through the airport security checkpoints unidentified. And it is just ridiculous that we waste people's time and spend all this money. And by the way, there actually is a German airline that lets people fly naked.
0: Germans and their love for nudism should not be new. Now we hear that an airline have taken the love for nude in the skies. Germany has an airline where you can be on the board without any clothes. The flyer must be fully clothed when they board the plane. But they can wander around nude in the cabin after the flight has taken off.
1: And that way you can tell they don't have any weapons, right? Now I think the answer is to simply move to random inspections. That is the best way to throw bad guys off, uh, off base and allow the rest of us, the you know, traveling public, to travel unscathed. I'm Peter B. Collins. Thanks for joining us today for the broadcast. Brad will be returning uh, in a couple of days, so catch him here. And I want to thank you for checking out my comments today. Feel free to follow my work at PeterBCollins.com or at the exciting new independent media outlet, NewsBud.com. Thanks for listening to the broadcast.